The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. On today's episode, we'll be talking about some of the most bizarre creatures evolution has to offer and the environmental pressures that shape them. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Jesse Yaros. I'm here with Matt Simon, a science journalist at Wired Magazine, where he writes the Absurd Creature of the Week column. He's also the author of The Wasp That Brainwashed the Caterpillar, Evolution's Most Unbelievable Solutions to Life's Biggest Problems, which he's here to talk with us about today. Matt, thanks for joining us. And thank you for having me. So, uh, how did you become so fascinated with animals? That's a good question. Um, I probably just got the David Attenborough book, if I'm being honest. Uh, like a lot of people watching all of his documentaries, and uh, over the years I had kind of compiled in my head this list of oddities in the animal kingdom, um, and when I got to Wired, I, I pitched as a column, and we ended up doing that. Um, and uh, it's just uh, the more that I get into these things, I fall down these rabbit holes. I just keep getting more and more creatures. I have a list something like 150 long uh, that I'm at at this point. So there are no shortage of oddities in the animal kingdom, that's for sure. Yeah, and your book is a great example of that. Do you recall oh, one of those early oddities that really got you hooked on uh, animals? Yeah, so it must have been the... Um, the zombie ant, which comes up in this book, uh, it is by far the most bizarre interaction between two creatures in the animal kingdom. Um, so what's happening is that this is a fungus that is invading ants, typically in the rainforest of South America. Um, what happens is the fungus falls as a spore from a tree and lands on the cuticle of an ant and works its way through that cuticle with some enzymes and, and pressure and kind of explodes itself into the ant's body, where it replicates and grows through its tissues in a not pleasant way. Um, eventually, it ends up surrounding the brain and releasing chemicals that actually drive the ant out of the colony and back up into a tree, always about 10 inches off the ground, always pointing, pointing northwest, um, and always at about noon during the day. Uh, it's consistent very, very consistent and, and, and bizarre in that way. Um, and uh, conveniently, the fungus has placed the ant above the colony's trail. So when it grows as a stalk outside, out of the back of the ant's head, it rains down on all the colony mates below and infects them, and it keeps going as a pretty nasty cycle that the colony has to deal with day to day. It's a crazy example of... Uh, this sort of push and pull you talk about a lot in the book of uh, a certain animal or host evolving with and against its own uh, parasite. So uh, do you have any examples of how this, this type of ant has evolved certain traits to combat this zombie fungus? Yeah, so um, oddly enough, what appears to have happened over evolutionary time is the fungus has commandeered the ant's brain, specifically because the ants have very sophisticated defenses to keep out intruders. So this is called social immunity. What the ants are doing is keeping a lookout for their comrades that are acting bizarre, because that's probably an indication that that is infected with something that you do not want in the colony. Um, so what happens is if an ant is stumbling around the 
looking sick, uh, one of her nestmates will pick her up and drag her out of the colony and unceremoniously dump her in a graveyard. Um, that is a problem for this fungus. Uh, it can't really stay in the, the nest and expect to be able to grow and infect more ants because it's going to get found out and dragged out. Um, so the ants are really good at figuring this out, but because this has been evolving for millions upon millions of years, the fungus has built up all these mutations that have allowed it to take control of the ant and drive it outside the colony where it won't be uh, found by the nestmates. So uh, what appears to be a very good ability of the colony to get rid of intruders, uh, this specific fungus has actually kind of commandeered that to its own ends. Hmm. So I imagine the balls on uh, the ant's court for figuring out how to combat that clever uh, trait of the fungus. Yeah. So it, it, the thing is that it's it, it's probably pretty hard for this yeah. fungus to actually wipe out whole colonies. Uh, this appears to be kind of a chronic infection that the colony is just dealing with day to day. It's not wiping out everybody um, because the ants are pretty good at actually discovering this and, and getting it out of the colony if, if need be. Um, so it, it's not as if this is a scourge tearing through the South American rainforest as much as it's just kind of like, well, like a cough that you and I might have. Gotcha. Well, I'm glad you brought up the, the zombie ant or zombie fungus, um, which interestingly is not an animal. It's one of the few creatures I believe in your book that isn't. Am I right? Right. Yeah. The fungus is not an animal, not a plant, kind of something uh, in its own right. So um, there's a lot of other animals that you talk about within your book and your column that have these sort of zombie-like traits. So could you give us a couple more examples of animals that have through evolution, learn to co-opt other creatures' minds. Yeah, so this is what's fascinating about this is that zombification in the animal kingdom is extremely common, and it's common across different branches of the tree of life. It's evolved very, very many times on its own. Uh, that is happening between wasps and between uh, funguses, uh, like in the, the zombie ant, and worms and things like that, they all have been able to figure out how to manipulate the behavior of their hosts for their own ends. Um, so at the moment, I'm actually writing my second book specifically looking at this idea that, uh, that it is so widespread in the animal kingdom, and, and scientists are just now beginning to understand the mechanisms involved here. Um, so uh, I guess the, the best example from the book might be the wasp that the book is named after. This is Cliptopontales. It's a, it's a parasitic wasp that targets caterpillars, and insects aren't exactly known for their parenting skills. Generally, they're laying their eggs and taking off, and those eggs hatch. Um, lots of little offspring, and ideally, uh, at least two of them survive to replace their parents. Uh, the Glyptopontheles wasp goes a little more dramatically about it. Uh, the female will find a caterpillar and inject up to 80 of her eggs into its body. Um, this is probably uncomfortable for the caterpillar, as you might imagine, especially when those eggs hatch into maggots and begin feeding on its non-vital tissues. That is, it's the, the larvae are leaving the vital organs because they want to keep this caterpillar alive. Um, after a couple weeks, these maggots have developed enough to where they decide they all need to now erupt out of the caterpillar at once. So you'll have 80 of these things squirming through the skin, gnawing their way out, of the caterpillar, which somehow survives this. And this might be because as they're growing, these maggots are shedding their skin to get bigger and bigger. 
when they are exiting the caterpillar, it seems they're doing their last molt, and that extra skin plugs up the wound that they leave behind. This lets the caterpillar keep living. Um, not only that, it looks like two or three of the maggots will stay behind while their, their brothers and sisters erupt out of the caterpillar. And what they seem to do is release chemicals that control the caterpillar's brain. Um, this includes uh, when the maggots spin their cocoons and, and begin pupating, the caterpillar will actually spin its own silk over these as an extra layer of protection, which doesn't make any sense because these things just assaulted it pretty badly. Um, so in addition to that, if there are any other parasites that are actually looking to parasitize the parasites that are pupating, the caterpillar actually violently fight them off with clicks of its head, and it stands there uh, over the eggs until the things hatch into adult wasps and fly away, at which point the caterpillar dies of starvation. Um, this is not acceptable behavior for a caterpillar unless there is some sort of behavioral manipulation going on with these maggots still inside of its body. So those those two or three maggots are sacrificing themselves for the good of their brothers and sisters, um, which from a natural selection perspective doesn't seem to make sense because you're supposed to be selfish, right? You want to be able to pass mm -hmm. down your own genes. But what's actually happening here is that by controlling the caterpillar's brain, it's actually turning into a bodyguard. And these two or three that stay behind are protecting their brothers and sisters in a way, and their genes get to go to the next generation by way of their siblings. So it's it's a remarkable uh, example of natural selection and working in ways that you just would never expect. Yeah, I mean, I study neuroscience for a living, and I still can't get my head wrapped around how many different chemicals must be involved in eliciting these behaviors. Because if we think about it, the zombie fungus in the control of the ants, uh, you know, must be at least controlling motor function. But the parasites, the larvae in the caterpillars not only are probably controlling motor function, but aggression. Do you know anything about how exactly the physiological mechanisms of zombification may happen and work? Yeah, that's where it's getting really interesting. This is kind of a, an emerging science, um, looking at the mechanisms involved. Uh, not much is known about cliptopontilis, the specific chemicals involved, but with other wasps and things, it appears to be more of a just dump of chemicals in the brain. It's not so much targeting specific spots in the brain, it's just flooding the brain with certain chemicals that may take hold somewhere, but not somewhere else, um, that are just by chance are figuring out how to manipulate the behavior in the in the brain. Um, it, and it's varying from creature to creature with the uh, fungus. It, well, the interesting work coming out of that is that uh, it's not just dumping chemicals on the brain when it kind of surrounds it as, the, as a film. It never actually penetrates the brain per se, but, but sticks, sticks to the area around it. Um, the fungus appears to also be growing through the muscles themselves. Um, when it does that, it, it pries apart the muscle fibers in the ant, and it's severing those neurons. So, mm -hmm. in a sense, it is paralyzing the muscles in the ant's body, which doesn't make any sense because it still has to drive the ant outside of the colony. Um, this is very, very early work, but what appears to be happening, and this is very theoretical at the moment is that the ant or the, excuse me, the fungus is in some way 
replacing the nervous system of the ant. So when it grows through these muscles, it's releasing its own neurotransmitters that mimic those of the ants to almost become like a, an actual puppet master pulling the strings of the host that it's invaded. Um, again, that's, that's very early work. It's theoretical. Uh, it hasn't yet been proven, but that it is in fact growing through these muscles and, and paralyzing them. So something else must be going on to be able to get these muscles to move. So uh, again, it, it's varying from from creature to creature because this again has evolved many many times across very distant branches of the tree of life from worms and, and funguses and and wasps and things like that that have all figured out their own unique ways to mind control their hosts right so could you give us a hypothetical scenario of over time how an ant species uh, and the pressures put upon it might lead it to evolve uh such traits that uh, require a release of different neurotransmitters or hormones into another animal. And for the, what would uh, drive the evolution of the fungus? What would, yeah, drive the evolution of the fungus or even just a wasp to uh, what kind of mutations over time would lead to uh, this ability? Or, you know, stepwise, what do you think? Yeah, this is this is the incredible thing about evolution. Uh, it, it, this is a very slow process. It's not like a fungus landed on an ant and figured out how to mind control it. This built up over millions upon millions of years, uh, step by step, step by a very tiny step. So uh, the beautiful thing about natural selection is that if you have an advantage in your environment over your peers. Um, you are more likely to pass down your genes. Um, so what might have happened with the fungus is that it got into the ant, uh, somehow figured out how to work through the cuticle, and ended up killing the ant in the colony. Uh, it wasn't able to drive it out, uh, and it got found by a worker, but maybe it actually got transmitted to that worker that, that found the infected ant, um, and it was able to get to the next generation that way. Uh, but that isn't as efficient as, say, building up these mutations that step-by-step step allow you to drive the ant out of the colony. Um, and again, this is if it's making you better at passing down your genes, uh, that's, that's favored by natural selection. Uh, so what is happening is very, very slowly. Again, this did not happen overnight. Um, it, it's, it starts by innovating an ant, and it maybe gets a little bit better at driving out of the colony, and it just improves over time to drive it, say, 10 inches off the ground, where the temperature and humidity is ideal for its growth, uh, and at a certain time of day, that's ideal for its growth. So um, it's this is the endlessly fascinating thing to me about evolution, is that this is all an automatic process. It's not like there's any thought involved. The, the fungus didn't think, you know what I'm going to do today is I'm going to ruin the day of an ant. Uh, no, it, it's it's automatic. These are mutations that happen naturally over time, and it adds up into these what we see as an almost impossibly complex interaction between organisms, but is in fact just a product of evolution. It's It's, to me, just so, so astounding. Right. And I, how bizarre some of these animals are, uh, you know, have led over history to people thinking that certain things are by design, right? The trajectory of time that humans have existed has been a blip on the map relative to the time that it has taken for all of this slow 
stepwise evolution to take place, right? Yeah, but I mean, when you think about it, the interesting thing about humans is that we have our own ancestors, right? Uh, our ancestors uh, were mammals, of course, like us, um, and that developed into something that we as humans would see as more complex, right? We think that we're the bee's knees because we've got these great big brains uh, with which to think of fun ideas and, and build buildings and war machines and things like that. But we are no more advanced than something like a fungus that invades an ant. It's what you are adapted to your environment that, that makes these organisms so, so amazing. What makes us frankly, amazing as humans. Um, but yeah, it, it's, we all have our origins three and a half billion years ago when life started on this planet and we split off in different ways. We're, we're mammals. We have our mammal friends into dogs and cats and things like that. Um, but that makes it no less interesting that elsewhere in the animal kingdom, these complex interactions are going on and, and they've been built by the, same forces of natural selection. And that's not to say that you can't believe in a higher power, but you have to be able to believe in the very proven uh, mechanisms of natural selection building these, these mind-blowingly complex creatures. Right. So for our listeners, um, you gave a great example in the book of a very simple natural selection uh, manifestation with these moths during the Industrial Revolution. Um, yeah. Could you explain that to us a little bit more? Yeah, this this is so fascinating. This is uh, actually watching evolution in action. You, you think of evolution as taking millions upon millions of years to create organisms and, and big changes, and that's most certainly the case, but it also can work very, very quickly. And this this one that you mentioned, these were the pepper moths in Britain, and Britain had itself a little bit of an industrial revolution not too long ago, um, which coated the countryside in soot. Uh, and when that happened, the trees themselves, the and the, the bark in particular, grew blackened, and that was a problem for this kind of cream-colored speckled moth because it used that bark to blend in to avoid predators. Uh, so now that that bark is black, it's sticking out like a sore thumb. And over not that many generations, just a couple of, of decades, you saw this population shift from this cream-colored uh, moth into something that is very, very dark uh, and almost a soot-like color. Um, and that's because those moths that were born with lighter coloration got picked off by the birds, but those born darker managed to survive. That meant that they were able to pass down their genes that coded for things like dark uh, coloration. So over the course of, again, not that long, you could see this evolution in action as this population shifted very dramatically in its coloration to better fit in with its environment because it was under such intense pressure from this predation to uh, to survive. Right. And it is interesting what you mentioned about how quick evolution was. Uh, and I think maybe a misconception is that um, that evolution can happen within one generation. That's not the case, is it? Right. Yeah, this is, uh, I, I think, maybe the most fascinating illustration of this. This is recent, I think a couple of months ago. Uh, the scientists devised this experiment where they put bacteria in this giant Petri dish. Um, they had varying levels of antibiotics um, at the 
left and right edges, you started out with very little antibiotics. And as you moved in toward the center, you got more and more and more. I think at the, at the center, it was something like a thousand times the concentration of antibiotics that would kill this bacteria. Uh, so what you saw is over their generations, again, like you said, this evolution doesn't happen in a single generation. Uh, generation after generation, you've got these mutations that allowed the bacteria to better survive these increasing concentrations of antibiotics, and they moved, and you can actually watch it map the way that the bacteria split and moved into these new regions and eventually conquered the center, which is quite frankly terrifying when you think of things like antibiotic-resistant bacteria, but it's a amazing, even for me, even more amazing than the, 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 the pepper moth, uh, illustration of of evolution in action, because this happened over the course of, I believe, just a, a couple of weeks, this bacteria, wow. just because bacteria work uh, in their generation so much more quickly than, than we are moths do. Um, but yeah, it's it, you can see this, and and it's, it's so incredible to me, because you get the three and a half billion years of life on Earth. Yes, we evolved into these magnificent creatures, but bacteria are just kicking our asses as far as rapid <laughs> evolution goes. Uh, and so are beetles, you, uh, as you learn in the book, right? A quarter of the animals in the world, is that right? Quarter of animal species, 25% are incredibly beetles. Um, that's not insect species, a quarter of insect species, it's a quarter of all known animal species on Earth are beetles. That's, it's just astounding. Um, and what seems to have happened is beetles are, are gifted with these wonderful wing covers. Uh, if you've seen a ladybug, those covers are those uh, red and black speckled bits that kind of snap open and the wings come out uh, and the, the butterfly flies off. Uh, those wing covers seem to have been able to uh, have allowed the beetle to adapt to a ton of different environments. Desert, there are beetles that live in the water, they can trap air bubbles uh, beneath those wing covers and, and breathe that way. Uh, the beetles are just, there's no beating the beetles, really. I guess if you want to compare them to bacteria, the bacteria has conquered the world, sure. But as far as more complex life forms are concerned, beetles are where it's at. There's just so, so many. I believe it's the count is up to like 500,000 mm-hmm. species so far. It's, it's just insane. Um, but it, it's... In the book, I do mention one particular one that I would I would like to call out because it's it's fascinating to me the, the tiger beetle, um, which is a killer among the beetles, as its name might suggest. Uh, it has these very very long legs, and it uses those to run down basically anything in its environment. It's incredibly fast. It is so fast that when it's running. Its eyes cannot collect enough photons to be able to make images out. So every once in a while, it has to actually stop, regain its bearings, and lock on to its prey again, and then take off. Uh, but it doesn't matter that it's stopping because it is so incredibly fast that it will run anything down and tear it to pieces with these giant jaws. So definitely a different mode of life from the ladybug, of course. But still, uh, these beetles are just everywhere, and they are so diverse and so incredible. Uh, yeah, and they're actually, they're really beautiful too. They're, uh, I've realized that it took me a lot longer to get through your book than I expected because I had to look everything up. Um, <laughs> and that's something I, I really enjoyed. And there was even a point where I believe you, you encouraged the reader, uh, to go look up a video of the lyrebird. And yeah. I'm wondering whether this was 
uh, something you thought about, at least in this day and age with all of as technology and phones as our companions, uh, whether that would be um, an aid in, in helping readers really uh, interact with the animals that you're describing. Yeah, yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe I might be encouraging distraction and then with that, but I think it's a, a, a really good supplement. Uh, you can't put videos in books, of course, at least not yet, but I, I wrote a book because I was doing this column and I, I wanted to have a, more of a thematic element to it. So I wanted to tie all these creatures together in a certain way, as opposed to just kind of doing one after the other week after week. Um, but I, I think that the internet, like you went off and did, you were doing your own research of these creatures. It's a, it's an amazing supplement to things like books. Books are not dead. Books will never die. Um, I will write them till the day that I die, I hope. Um, it, but it, video does bestow uh, certain things on these creatures, like the lyrebird you mentioned, which is able to mimic the calls of other birds, of course, but also things like chainsaws and construction equipment. Um, and it does that uh, not because it has been evolving with construction equipment for millions upon millions of years, but uh, because uh, lady lyrebirds are very impressed by male lyrebirds that are able to pull off these these calls. But um, I encourage, I think, in a, a couple maybe instances in the book for people to, to put it down and go look at YouTube and hopefully not fall down a rabbit hole, of course, uh, but to come back to the book <laughs> eventually. Mm-hmm. But yeah, video is a, a powerful thing, and it does things that words alone cannot do, and that's part of the reason why I also do a weekly show for Wired of these creatures. So you did uh, decide, though, instead of pictures, to include illustrations by Vladimir Stankovic. Stankovic. So why did you decide? They're beautiful illustrations. Why did you decide to have drawings instead of photographs? Yeah, so that was actually um, Penguin's idea to, to do the illustrations, which I totally jumped at. I, I think that it was a fantastic idea. I think the illustrations turned out more beautiful than I could have ever imagined. Uh, Vladimir is amazing at giving the creatures personality and I think matching kind of the whimsical tone of the book, um, but also the factual tone of the book to combine those that produce illustrations that are at one time um, beautiful and accurate. Um, and I think that they can lend so much more to the tone of the book than just a, a photo would. And I, I feel like sometimes when you put photos in books, especially in academic books, uh, you put them all kind of like in the middle in those those nice glossy photos, um, and it doesn't necessarily lend as much as having the illustrations throughout the book. And, and this actually, uh, when they mentioned that they wanted to do illustrations, I thought back to this book by uh, Mary Austin. It's called The Land of Little Rain. It was She wrote this back in the turn of the 20th century where she was in the deserts of Southern California and actually had illustrations through the margins, uh, coyotes and things running around. And I floated that idea with Penguin. They said, yeah, let's do that, absolutely, uh, which I was surprised at. But uh, Vladimir did an incredible job and props to Penguin for thinking that up and for committing so hard to making this book look as beautiful as humanly possible. I guess the contributors made a point to really separate this from anything academic. Your uh, writing style is incredibly colloquial and has you have a sense of humor that's peppered throughout the entire book. So has that always been a part of your writing style? 
Yeah, it, I, I guess it has. People ask me a lot of the time, uh, did I like, did I work on the voice that I have? And I always say, no, it, not really. It kind of just happened. You write enough and this sort of thing comes out. You have your influences, of course, that you don't necessarily think of consciously, but watching movies or reading other writing over the years, you, I, I have developed kind of this colloquial tone, which I think is important in uh, imparting this knowledge of, of natural selection, because I, I think our, our schools aren't necessarily the best in all parts of the country at, at teaching this sort of thing. And I think it's important to be able to make it as fun as possible. And by using these creatures that are quite frankly uh, absurd to us, human beings, uh, it's, I feel like it's a good window into learning about evolution because it makes it, I, I, I hope the book makes it more fun to be learning about these things. Um, but at the same time, I try to be as respectful as possible to these creatures, which I have, of course, the highest reverence for. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, getting back to the creatures then, I'm going to backtrack a little bit. Um, so, uh, when we're talking about, uh, bacteria and other animals that can evolve over a very short period of time, um, I wanted to bring up, uh, Jean-Baptiste Lamarck, uh, because you mentioned him in the book, uh, and his debunked theories on inheritance, uh, of acquired traits. Um, the textbook example is, uh, do you want to explain it? The giraffe with, uh, stretching the neck. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So Lamarck, uh, and I'll, I'll preface this by saying that science is about being wrong. Uh, when you're wrong, somebody comes along and uh, finds out the truth to, to the matter. Uh, it's how science, and in particular how uh, biology and the study of natural selection works. Uh, it's in a way good to be wrong because it inspires debate. So what Lamarck uh, had said, uh, as far as inheritance goes, what he used the example of the giraffe, is that the giraffe has such a long neck because it stretches to reach the, the tallest uh, branches to get the food there. Um, and when it does that, it can actually pass those inherited characteristics to its offspring, which turn out to be wrong, of course. Giraffes have long necks because those that were born with bigger, longer necks were able to reach uh, more food, and that maybe probably helped them survive better. And they because they survived better, they were able to pass down those genes for a longer neck to their offspring. And that just adds up over the generations until you get something that is uh, as incredible looking as the long neck giraffe. Uh, but again, being wrong is fine. Somebody came along, uh, Mendel specifically, uh, and actually figured out how inheritance works. And now we know that. That's great. Um, but uh, all due respect to Lamarck, though, because he was a, a scientist and a good one, and whatever, you're wrong sometimes, and that's that's how science works. That's it encourages debate, and it's a it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, and, and Lamarck's theories, at least uh, the core of them, are making somewhat of a comeback with uh, the nascent field of epigenetics, right? So the turning on and off of gene expression. Yeah, that's that's where it's getting a little. Yeah, that's sticky. That's a very new field, and it does bring up these. It's kind of like an inherent horror that you have. It's like Lamarck was wrong. We all know that. It's uh, it might be seen as an embarrassing mistake that he thought that giraffes were able to stretch their necks and and pass down those genes. Um, it's very interesting um, that the environment can kind of switch on and off these genes. It'll be interesting to see what comes out of that in the coming years. But you, again, you have this, this inherent revulsion, but uh, I'm, for one, I'm interested in, in seeing what comes of that. 
Right. Um, at least there is some evidence that I guess how being one animal being under stress might turn on or off some genes that may become expressed or passed on to her offspring and expressed in later generations. But that's a lot different than uh, your neck growing so long that you pass it on. Yeah, right. So yeah, we we now have the uh, the true mechanisms involved, and and the, again, it's the it's the the purposelessness. It sounds sorry nihilistic, but it's the purposelessness of natural selection. These are mutations that are happening uh, sometimes for bad. Sometimes you might grow an extra finger. Not a good one. Um, a lot of mutations you just don't even notice. Uh, we all have them, but some of them are good, and they bestow an organism with some sort of advantage, such as a longer neck. Um, but to me, it's just so fascinating that the three and a half billion year journey of life on Earth has been with this kind of an accidental process. Right. And, and in keeping with, uh, talking about, uh, some of the historical figures and researchers and discovery of animals and evolution, uh, you mention or talk a lot about several, at least to my knowledge, unsung naturalists, including Alfred Russell Wallace and Maria Sevilla Marion. Could you tell us a bit about uh, their backgrounds um, and discoveries? Because they seem a bit different uh, than Charles Darwin's. Yeah, so um, the fascinating thing about Alfred Russell Wallace was that he was doing the same kind of work that Darwin was. He was uh, a little more uh, difficult in his his journeys. Uh, he was traipsing through jungles for many years at a time, getting malaria several times, uh, ending up very, very poorly in a lot of respects. Darwin's journey was a bit different. He was uh, sat on a boat, which is a miserable experience in its own right, but he uh, he had uh, the most comfortable quarters you could possibly get, really, in a boat of that day. And when he was on land, he was able to stay with expats and things like that in South America. Um, but, I mean, Darwin, of course, didn't think up his idea of evolution by natural selection while he was in South America. It actually came to him afterwards. Um, but while he was formulating these ideas and, and kind of teasing out this theory of evolution by natural selection, Alfred Russell Wallace was um, in the Malay Archipelago, doing the same kind of collecting of specimens, he would ship them back to England uh, for sale. That's how he made his living. Um, but he actually, while Darwin was doing his work, he came up with this idea and sent it in a letter to Darwin, which would seem like a tragic mistake. Um, Darwin, of course, found this uh, horrifying, and uh, him and his friends actually put together a paper um, and presented it with Alfred Russell Wallace's paper at the same time to a, a society of scientists, um, which didn't really make that big of a splash for whatever reason at the time. But of course, it did when uh, Darwin then went and published his book in 1859, The Origin of Species. Um, but so Alfred Russell Wallace hasn't really been honored, I don't think, for his contributions. He thought of the same exact thing as Darwin did. Darwin was far ahead of him. He had uh, a much more developed sense of this theory. But it's the same idea that uh, these mutations uh, happen in species, and a lot of species die because they don't uh, aren't necessarily best adapted to their environment, and that's kind of what's driving the history of um, life on Earth. Um, so, and the other uh, naturalist that you mentioned, uh, Maria, she was uh, a European, but uh, at one point, decided that she wanted to study why caterpillars turn into butterflies. Um, it was a mystery at the time. Uh, 
by the way, it seems to be that caterpillars are different from butterflies because it allows them to exploit different resources than the adult butterflies do, um, but whatever. Uh, nobody knew that back then, and, and this was actually in the 17th century that she took off. Um, uh, she had left her husband a, a couple years before. She took her daughter with her to South America and was uh, traipsing around in the jungles and collecting her own specimens, and she was actually probably the first person... Uh, male or female, to ever set out specifically on a scientific expedition like this. Um, so she was quite literally a trailblazer in this sense, um, and she has been almost completely forgotten by science. Uh, even though she did this incredible work, she, she put together these wonderful folios of illustrations of the caterpillars that she came across. And uh, she comes up in the book because she actually came across this particular caterpillar. It's called the uh, asp caterpillar. It's called that because it stings very, very badly. She found this out the hard way by, by grabbing what seemed to be a very fluffy caterpillar and getting a sting. Um, this also happens these days very, very often uh, in South America as well as so the Southern United States. Uh, but she did not get her credit. There was a book written about her a couple years ago, which is which is great. Um, but it's, it's a shame that she was so badly forgotten in science, especially considering, again, she was the, probably the first person to go about a journey like this. Well, it's great that you bring attention to them in the book, because I definitely learned something new. So we'll be right back after this. Science for the People is a weekly radio show and podcast that explores everyday life from a scientific perspective. We are a member of the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on science and critical thinking. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to support us at Patreon, to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, and to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. More talking about humans in relation to animals, but more about our use of animals. So you mentioned uh, that uh, throughout history, we have actually taken advantage of certain species, often invasive species, to combat other invasive species. Um, case in point, the ant decapitating fly for red ants in Florida. Uh, could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, uh, God bless the ant decapitating fly, which, by the way, is one of my favorite names in <laughs> science. Uh, that is his official name, by the way. Uh, well, I guess it's more common name, not the scientific name, but ant decapitating fly does exactly what you would expect it to do. It's, uh, but it doesn't do it in the way that you might think. Uh, this is a very small fly, and what it does is it finds these colonies of fire ants and descends and uses her ovipositor to inject an egg into individual ants. Um, when this happens, the colony freaks out, and it'll be running around like chickens with their heads cut off. Well, I guess not cut off yet. They will be soon. Um, <laughs> but they're panicking when they're doing this. They're releasing alarm pheromones, and that's just attracting more of these flies. So you'll end up getting a swarm of these parasitic flies injecting all of these individual ants with their eggs. Um, so what happens is that that egg hatches into a maggot, and it works its way through the ant's body and into its head. Um, it doesn't damage the brain, but kind of feeds on some juices 
what it does, much like the fungus that controls the ant, it will guide the ant outside of the colony, and this time it drives it down into the leaf litter, which has the ideal humidity and temperature with which it'll develop. When it does that, it releases enzymes that dissolve the membranes that hold the ant's body together, and including among those membranes are the membranes that hold the neck together. Uh, so the head pops off with the maggot inside, and then it eats the brain, and pupates, and then flies off and does its thing and, and terrorizes perhaps more fire ant colonies. But as you mentioned, this <laughs> uh, has been explored as a use of biocontrol. The, the mace of fire ants in the southern United States are a menace. They're, they're horrible for people, they're horrible for agriculture, um, and instead of trying to attack them with pesticides, an idea might be to use their natural enemy in South America, the anticapitating fly, to combat it that way. Um, it might not work on a very large scale because it would be hard for ant captain flies to wipe out whole colonies, but it's an intriguing idea to use one species against another. Yeah, and uh, there are some other examples of that recently, also in Florida, you know, with the release of the genetically engineered Aedes aegypti mosquito. Yeah. Um, do you know much about that? Yeah, that's, uh, I've written about that a little bit before. That's fascinating. It's, uh, it's known as a gene drive. And the idea is that, um, specifically with something called CRISPR, you're able to edit the genes in an organism, um, and very, very easily. Um, so the idea is that what you can do is release sometimes uh, a mosquito that has perhaps a resistance to the parasite that causes malaria in humans. Um, and if you've done this right, that mosquito will breed with other mosquitoes and this resistance to, to malaria might pass through these, these whole populations. And that's great for human beings. Um, you can also create males that are not able to reproduce. So the females give uh, birth to them, but they're not able to go about their business. And, and, and that might be another way to go about it. But this is, of course, very controversial. And, and Florida was pushing back on this pretty hard, uh, at least some of the residents, because uh, it's a scary thing to think of. You might be editing the genes of an animal and that might get out of control somehow. But this is, this is done in a very scientific sober way. It's not like scientists are going crazy releasing uh, genetically modified creatures out into the wild willy-nilly. Um, but this is a, a, a topic of some contention in uh, specifically conservation circles is, is do you do this to life forms like mosquitoes, but what about other animals, bigger invasive species such as rats on islands? Uh, do you do the same thing where you drive this gene through the population that, that prevents it from, from breeding um, and eventually collapses? But yeah, it, it, this is a this will be an extremely controversial topic in the, in the coming years. Uh, so that's very, very much something to keep an eye on. Right. Are you aware of any uh, introduction of any species that uh, got out of control or really changed the... Uh, ecological environment? No, no, to my knowledge, that hasn't happened yet. Again, this is a, an extremely sober science. Um, where they're being very, very careful with this sort of thing. Um, but, you know, I, I don't foresee that ever becoming a real issue because this isn't like a, a mad scientist throwing out these genes into, into the population uh, on a whim. Um, so in keeping with the theme of humans using animals, uh, you mentioned we're all aware that a lot of animal research takes place, but you mentioned uh, some interesting studies that are happening in these 
on these bizarre creatures, uh, including the ahalotls and the naked mole rats, uh, for limb regeneration and, um, I guess, tumor growth suppression. Uh, could you tell us a bit about those studies and any other cool studies happening in science based on any of these interesting creatures? Yeah, so the axolotl salamander, I, I had the, the privilege of visiting a lab actually down at UC Irvine um, that is working on this salamander, which has incredible regeneration uh, abilities. What you can do uh, is you can actually cut off the limb of an axolotl salamander, uh, and of course, in a laboratory uh, scientific setting, of course, um, and it's actually able to regrow that limb pretty rapidly. And that's really incredible when you think about what's happening with regeneration. It's not like an axolotl salamander is just regrowing a solid stick of flesh. It has to know somehow when to create, say, a joint or skin or uh, or tendons and muscles and things like that. Um, so what seems to be happening is these cells are are kind of coming together at the, the nub and they're actually communicating to turn into these different kinds of tissues and grow out this limb. It's such a remarkable uh, regenerator. In fact, you can remove part of an axolotl salamander's brain and it will regrow that part of the brain. So what this lab is looking at specifically is figuring out how this works, because we humans, of course, scar. We don't regenerate, but the axolotl salamander never scars. It always regenerates. So the idea is that if you can figure out how that's happening, you might be able to bestow this on human beings, and indeed uh, the United States government funds this lab in part uh, because it might want to apply this to soldiers um, who have lost their limbs uh, in war. So uh, the issue here is that it, it's not about injecting humans or with some sort of uh, like super cell or something like that. It's what appears to be something called a growth uh, factor, and these growth factors are what's mobilizing these cells. So if you can figure out how to use growth factors in a specific sequence, you might be able to use them to help a human being regrow a limb. This is also very early research, um, but it's it's fascinating stuff. Um, right, and exploring growth factors could also be tremendous for just regrowth of neurons and, and combating paralysis as well. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. And this is, there's so much to learn from these, these axolotl salamanders and how they're mobilizing these growth factors because, uh, they go about healing in a completely different way than we do. Um, and you also mentioned the, uh, naked mole rat, which has another superpower and it, it seems to never get cancer. You have to try really, really hard in a laboratory setting to give cancer to a uh, naked mole rat. Uh, what appears to be the issue here is that naked mole rats are subterranean uh, creatures. They are almost bald, really. They have uh, sporadic hairs here and there because they don't really need hair down there in, in uh, kind of the, the climate-controlled uh, area underground. So the issue underground, though, is that you need to be able to slip through these tunnels easily, and that's especially important if a predator somehow gets down there with you. Uh, what the naked mole rat has for this is incredibly stretchy skin, um, and that allows it to get through these tight squeezes. Um, that skin comes about because of a certain chemical that also seems to have anti-cancer properties. So the idea is that if we can figure out um, how the uh, this this chemical is working inside the body of the naked mole rat, we might be able to somehow mobilize that 
in our own bodies. Um, so that's also very early research. But yeah, uh, beyond being odd, uh, of course, these creatures do have a lot to teach science as far as human health goes. Great. Um, so um, another interesting uh, theme that ran throughout your book were animals whose uh, external conditions dictated their gender. Can you tell us a bit about some of these examples? Uh, so, so which ones? So we got the tongue-eating isopod as one, and I believe the <laughs> worm-eating bones or the bone-eating worms. Yeah. Eating, both eating. Yeah. yeah, so yeah, that would be the tongue-eating isopod, which is a gnarly little creature. Uh, what it does is it, it lives out in the open ocean. Um, it's a little crustacean. And what it does is it parasitizes snapper out of fish. So uh, what happens when it gets into a snapper's gills, it, it will hold tight um, and just bide its time until another tongue-eating isopod comes into the, uh, the, the fish. And, and I should mention that these are all starting out as males. So Two males are now inside the uh, fish. The first one that got there then transforms into a female. Um, and then she makes her way through the gills and into the snapper's mouth. Mind you, the snapper is still very much alive for this, and it cannot be uh, very comfortable because the tongue and the isopod latches onto its tongue and begins sucking the blood out of it. Uh, that, of course, atrophies the tongue away. And the tongue of the isopod will grow so big that it will actually functionally replace the tongue of the snapper, um, which is a level of horrifying that I don't think we human beings are able to even comprehend. And there's some uh, terrible photos of, of <laughs> fishermen catching snapper. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Somebody actually made a horror movie about it. Uh, I think the, 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 the parasites made the jump from fish to human beings. And I refuse to watch that damn movie. No way. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, so, and then at, at this point, the female mates with a male who kind of comes out of the gills. Uh, they do their thing. And she will produce her young, which will come out of the fish's mouth or, or back through the gills and out. Um, and then her life is complete. She's, she's uh, done her part of reproducing. Uh, she'll then let go and either be swallowed by the snapper or just kind of fall out of its mouth. But either way, the snapper will perish because it cannot feed without a tongue to grind food against its mouth with. Uh, so this is a fascinating uh, case of the uh, the sex switching uh, once another individual gets into the, the, the host. Uh, and that makes really good sense because if you end up in a host as a male and another male comes in, that doesn't do you any good. And it could be just you two that ever find that one fish. But if one of you is able to turn into the opposite sex, you're then able to reproduce. Um, so fascinating case of um, sex changing here uh, very rapidly and in a, a very really weird way to be like abusing a fish like that. <laughs> not only can it not feed anymore, but it's got these isopods having sex in its mouth. Well, that is appetizing. Um, so, I, you know, I don't know if our listeners know this, but I do. There's one of those videos on YouTube about everything wrong with the movie Finding Nemo. And <laughs> have, have you seen this where they say that if uh, in the beginning of the movie where the nest is destroyed, uh, Marlin, the father figure, would have turned into a mother figure? 
Do you know if that's huh. right? Of clownfish? I don't, I have never heard that. That That's the clownfish, right? Yeah. Something to explore. I have not heard that. Oh. I haven't double checked, so. so um, this is, I mean, this is possible in other fishes. There's a, a fish called the parrotfish um, that does this as well. Um, it, it will change into uh, a male. They all start a female, and a, a male will uh, appear and actually take over um, a group of females that he, he mates with and, and kind of uh, is the patriarch of, of that family. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's actually pretty common to have this kind of sex switching happening um so who knows if it's possible in the parrotfish maybe it is for the clownfish but i had not heard that okay um so i think who better to ask uh for the superlatives of the animal kingdom so uh what comes to the top of your head when i say for animals best hair best hair uh that would be probably between the crested rat and the asp caterpillar. Okay. Best. Is it either one of those? Did I get it right? Oh, yeah. Um, no, the correct answer was a uh, unicorn. Um, oh, damn it. But <laughs> I, didn't even, I didn't think of that one. <laughs> uh, best eyes. Best eyes. Uh, that would be the giant squid. Giant squid. Okay. Biggest. Is that right? Uh, yes. Whatever, you so know. Are, the, are any of these correct answers or is this a subjective <laughs> test? Um, they are subjective. Though the best answer besides unicorn is narwhal. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> best. Oh, cutest couple. Cutest couple. Um, well, we'd have to go with a lyrebird, I guess, because it's just so romantic, imitating chainsaws and things like that. Mm-hmm. I thought you were going to go for the um, the male anglerfish that fuses uh, into the female. I Should I talk about the male? Yeah, let's. You know what? Let's yeah. do that as the last animal. Oh, it's so interesting. Yeah. Um, horrifying sex life of the, <laughs> the anglerfish. So the deep sea anglerfish you've probably seen before. The, the, it's got this kind of spherical body, this giant mouth, this big nasty teeth. Uh, and it's spherical because there's a giant stomach and needs to be able to take on whatever rare prey that it finds in the deep. Uh, the problem with the deep sea is that you're also not going to be able to find mates that often um so this is the female anglerfish though the male anglerfish looks nothing like her he can be up to five hundred thousand times lighter in weight than she can he is tiny um so what he does his only purpose in life he does not feed uh is to find a female and when he does he bites onto her body and at that point his his tissues start to fuse to hers, uh, which is romantic, I think. Uh, he taps into her circulatory system uh, and, and takes blood as nutrition. But more importantly, when he taps into her circulatory system, their hormones are not synced. Um, so whenever she beckons, he will release sperm and she will release her eggs. And they'll all mix up and ideally create little baby anglerfish. Um, it seems grotesque, uh, and probably the life of a male anglerfish isn't the most luxurious, uh, but it, it makes a good amount of sense. If you're going to find a mate in the deep sea, you want to hold on to him for a very long time. And the female anglerfish can, over her 30-year or so lifetime, she can collect eight, maybe nine of these males on her body um, and just be swimming around releasing her eggs, and they'll release the sperm, and they're just kind of one big happy family in their own way. If you could have any of the animals you've written about as a pet. That's tough. I would go with the pink fairy armadillo. So cute. The 
pink fairy armadillo is like no other armadillo on earth uh in the sense that it doesn't use its shell for protection it has this very thin band of shell at the top of its body it is like its name suggests pink and that's because blood vessels are actually showing through the flesh um it is not using this for protection again, but instead, as a radiator, it too lives underground like the naked mole rat, um, and it needs to be able to control its body temperature because it's at the mercy of the soil heating up and cooling down. So by pumping blood into that uh, that that strip on its back, it can actually cool down its core, and when it cools down, it can pump black blood back into its core to heat up. But it is the most adorable armadillo on the face <laughs> of planet Earth. Uh, uh, in keeping with our discussion about distractions on the internet, you should all go look it up because it's so cute. It's <laughs> extremely rare. Uh, the world expert in this creature has never actually glimpsed one in the wild, um, which is uh, incredible. She's usually getting them from villagers who happen upon them. But uh, funny story, she did at one point go down to Argentina where this, this creature lives um, and, and with a film crew. And they knew that if you get the ground wet, that might actually drive the armadillos out because they don't like getting wet at all, if, if at all possible. Um, so what they did was they sprayed the desert with a hose for quite some time um, to see if they get them out. Didn't work at all, but I'm sure the plants at least mm. appreciated it. What a letdown for her. Yeah, <laughs> I know, right? It just did it to spite her. Mm-hmm. And, and More than likely. And uh, the, the rareness of it, is that where the, the fairy name comes from? You know, I don't know. That's a good point. I, I don't. I would assume maybe that's the case. Hmm. We know where the pink part of it comes from. Right, they are right. Very, very much pink, but yeah, not so much. Okay. Rare, but uh, that's if they weren't so rare, that's the creature. Yeah. Choose as a pet. Yeah, I. I think after reading your book, I would choose the. Is it the giant African land snail? Yeah. 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 Definitely. You gotta be careful with those, though. They're very invasive. <laughs> I know. I know. I would be one of those guys that brought them to California, and you know, uh, it, they're just so. I love snails. I save them whenever it rains, or I try to, and yeah. so I just would be so cool. Um, but my cats would probably eat it. So. Oh yeah. They, um, we should mention that they're enormous. They're like a foot. They're giant. Yeah, they really are giant. They're Uh, wreaking havoc in Florida at the moment where they're an invasive species. So hopefully that. Florida is is really not doing that well. No, not as far as invasive species are concerned. They got pythons. That's (laughs) a scary one. Uh, yeah, they're, they're struggling with it. It's just, uh, unfortunately for Florida, it's a very lush place. Yeah. Lots of nutrition out there for creatures to eat. Yeah, I'm actually afraid to go to Florida. (laughs) Oh, there's so many stories of strange animals. Yep. Yep. <laughs> I want to thank you so much for joining us today and educating us on this bizarre world of amazing creatures. And thank you very much for having me. Thank you, Matt. If you're interested in learning more from Matt Simon, you can find links to his book and his Absurd Creature of the Week column on the show notes for this episode, which you'll find on our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten and consulting support from Desiree Shell. Our frequently seen guest hosts are Marion Kilgour, Anika Hazra, and Jessica Yaros. Our theme song is called Binary Consequence, and it was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern. Science for the People is entirely listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount, 
or you can send us a one-time donation in any amount via the donate page of our website. Science for the People is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at skeptic.org. The show is hosted by science news writer Bethany Brookshire and me, Rochelle Saunders. 